0: don't. There's there's only a handful of countries that are anywhere close to as free as us, and then even more that are a little bit of freedoms, but not near. And then you got countries like Australia that completely turned socialism in less than five years. I mean, they were a free country. They were dem, a, a democratic republic, very similar, well, not exactly, but similar to ours, and, and um, just... Now they're a socialist country that are fining people for not for being in the wrong place at the wrong time and not agreeing to certain things on uh, social medias and stuff like that. I mean, it's just all kinds of crazy stuff. It is, it is bizarre how fast. And this ought to be a lesson to us in America. We better pay attention because if Australia can do it that quick, why can't we? And by the way, yes, we are. So, all right. So we got a nice surprise today. Um, because it's just a bunch of weird things that happened. Our my uh, my kids showed up today. They weren't going to come until Sunday night, Monday morning, and uh, they're here. My grandkids showed up today, just a few hours ago. And um, the grandkids looked sort of rested. My kids, not so much. <laughs> they drove sixteen hours. Now they drove some and stopped, and but still, when you've got a two-year, one and a half-year-old. And a three-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. But they're here. We were so excited. But you know what's not here? No. Snow. Snow is not here. She has been waiting for snow to come to Colorado to Honey and Papa's house and make a snowman. I know. Linda had had to go buy carrots and everything. That she had carrots ready to go. Yeah, we're gonna gonna have to take her, gonna have to take her where Jesus still loves people. <laughs> Obviously, he's punishing us here, right? Okay, we're gonna look at the Christmas story today, tonight, and we're gonna look at we're gonna look at the the necessity, the importance of things. We're gonna look at it, some prophetic stuff too. Why was you know, where was this prophesied in Scripture and things like that? Because sometimes, you know, we know, we know that this stuff is prophesied beforehand, right? Uh, Over 330 different prophecies about Jesus from Old Testament to New Testament. And and most of the time, and and I'm not saying this is an indictment, I'm just saying this is the way it is. Most of the time, most Christians don't have a clue where any of those are. Right? Um... But we're going to look at some of those, but really what we're going to focus on tonight is looking at the stuff that is the story of the birth of Christ. We're going to limit it to that, the birth of Christ, and and why these things are important and why they're not. Now, I I talked a lot about uh, the virgin birth Sunday, Um, and so if you have something else to add to that part, we'll add to it. But let's go to um, Luke uh, chapter 1, and let's start in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Well, why is that important? Is there an importance to a descendant of King David? What is that? Okay, it was prophesied. Um, but why else would that be important? Why does it matter if, if it's from the lineage of David? Yes, that the that the um, the the uh, kingdom or the I'm not thinking of it right the, the kingship of uh, David will will be an eternal throne. The throne of David, that's what I'm thinking, will be an eternal an throne, and that Jesus fulfills this eternal throne. Plus, there's some other scriptures too. They're specifically linked to David. What about that Jesus is the lion of what? The tribe of Judah. Judah. What is the tribe of Judah? That's David. David is the tribe of Judah. Okay? Now here's the interesting thing about this that sometimes we don't pay attention to. It says right here that that Joseph, from the lineage of David, right? Except that Joseph did not supply anything for Jesus to be in existence. So why does it say that? Because actually... Um, when you when you really study this out, and, it, and it's not hard to do, you can see this. Mary is actually from the lineage of David. Okay? But why does it take time to say that Joseph is from the lineage of David? There's a few reasons. Any guesses? S- some of it is just the Jewish culture, the Jewish understanding that they would, in their head, they would have to have had, the patriarch had to have come from David, okay? Most people will, were not processing. Now, when you go to Matthew, Matthew would focus a little bit more on this than Luke would. Matthew focuses on more on the, um, the Jewish side of everything, right? That's When you start in the very beginning of Matthew, he focuses there. It's, the, the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, uh, the book of Luke was not written to a Jew- Jewish audience. It was written to a Gentile audience. And so he focuses a lot on the lineage of all this and brings everything. But, but, and so, the, so that is important from the Jewish cultural side. But we're going to get to something a little bit later that is important in the story that Joseph was from the lineage of David. As soon as I say it, everybody go, oh, yeah. You ready to say, oh, yeah. Yes. He had to go to Bethlehem because that's where he's from, and this is the lineage of David. He had to go to Bethlehem and pay his taxes in Bethlehem. The money. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's where it all comes down to. Now, these see, here's the thing with this is we think to ourselves, well, is, how much of this stuff is really important and it's not important? Well, the fact that, that it was prophesied, that Jesus was going to come through the lineage of David, they need to say that here. If they don't say it, let, let me show you this. In, um, in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, For the time is coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up a righteous descendant from King David's line. He will be a king who rules with wisdom. He will do what is just and right throughout the land. And this will be his name. The Lord is our Righteousness. In that day, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. There's no other king that can say that their name is the Lord, our righteousness. Only Jesus can be that. Right? And Jesus Jesus comes from the lineage of David. So let's go back to uh, Luke 1. He says... uh, Gabriel appeared to her and said, this is verse 28. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Have you ever wondered how, many, how much in that first few weeks few months that maybe Mary was not so sure this had happened you know all right i mean there are things that happen that woman potentially knows they're pregnant but it doesn't always mean that right um, and then and then she's wondering you know the first time she starts showing and now other people are paying attention i mean this this had to have been a a crazy roller coaster of a few weeks, few months for her. It had to have been. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. And he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Now this is language that really was confusing to everybody at the time. It was confusing to Mary. It became confusing later to the disciples. Um, because they were, they were, uh, they were expecting... To, for Jesus to set up an earthly throne, an earthly kingdom. And then it says that his kingdom will never end. And what they're thinking is they're uh, in a bloodline kind of thing. Right? He's, from King, he's from David, and then he's going he's to set up his throne on this earth, overthrow the Roman government, and then his descendants will take this throne forever and over. And that is not what God is saying. He's, he's saying in a transcendent sense, your kingdom will be eternal, not just for generations to come on this earth. Your, your throne will be an eternal throne. Your kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. Again, I talked about Sunday, the significance of a virgin. I talked more about this in first service, so let me, let me say a little bit more of this for some of you that weren't in first service. You were in second service. Um, it is that's the, the necessity of understanding that this is vital to the whole story. Jesus could not come from the seed of a man. Okay? The seed of a man provides the... Okay, you, know, you know who provides the blood type for a child? A baby is, is the man. The man's DNA provides what blood type that's going to be. Okay? The seed of the man is, is what starts this, baby from, starts this baby happening. If he comes from a man, then Jesus is broken from the beginning. Jesus didn't come from the seed of a man. He came from the seed of God. But he was put into humanity in the womb of a woman. His, his blood is God's blood. His lineage is holy lineage. It's divine lineage, right? It's still through humanity, and a woman takes this. And this is in no way a slight to a woman, but, but, the, but the, the context of lineage is about, in pretty much every people group, everywhere, forever, is about the, the male line, okay? This isn't Joseph's line. This is God's lineage, it was extremely necessary that Mary had never had any potential for seed to come from another human. Seed had to come from the Holy Spirit. This is, this is extremely important. Now, this, this does, in my opinion, give Mary an amazing place in history. What we have to be careful of is that we don't put her at some type of deity level. Right? This is where... Parts of the Catholic Church fall into this trap as they put her at levels of deity. Well, Mary wasn't God. Mary has to, has to accept Jesus as her Savior just like you and I do, right? She wasn't God. All right, the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. What is significant about that sentence? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. The next part is, so the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. Why is that? What does that matter? Well, you're breaking the sin line. There there is a profound anointing of holiness that's put upon Jesus that we don't have. Now, we can get there, but how do we get there? Wow, I heard something. By being born again. Which comes from whom? Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit and our faith. Right? So... So Jesus is born holy. The Holy Spirit anoints him. He is born holy. He is not born broken, sin-filled, like the rest of humanity. He is born holy. That is so important. Because he now now this is where it'll, it'll start messing with your head, and I and i really I have analyzed this and processed this in ways that are, that are just obsessive and not healthy for anybody. So I'll just give you little hints of it, okay? I've thought to myself, what would have happened if Jesus would have sinned? Think about this. Could Jesus sin? Yes, we have to make sure we understand that. If we don't get that, the whole story is messed up. Could Jesus have sinned? Yes, because why? He had free will and he was human. Scripture says he was tempted. I've said this for years and years, and people will come to me and say, that that is blasphemous to say that Jesus was actually tempted. We see three examples of it in Scripture. In John 4 and Luke 4. Jesus was specifically tempted. We see the exact moments when he was tempted. You say, well, he was never going to sin. He wasn't actually tempted. And, And by the way, I have discussed this in seminaries, and theological levels with professors. Well, he was not actually... This is the whole Calvinist predestination crowd that just can't go there, okay? Well, Jesus could not have sinned. But then then the Bible's a lie. That whole story in, in Luke 4 where he was led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, but he was led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan... And that whole thing's a lie. The whole story's a lie. So when, so when Satan says, wouldn't a nice slice of bread with some honey butter on it be really nice right now? Instead of Jesus saying, man doesn't live by bread alone, he should have said, I am God, I do not sin. Was that? Yeah, this is, this is the difference in the two. Why doesn't he say, I am God, I do not sin? Because he was human. He was human. And he had to do human things. He lived a human life, just like you and I. The difference is, is when he came to moments where Satan tempted him, his answer was what? No. Did did you want to say something?
1: Well, I was just going to say, because he had to model for us what he knew we would eventually need to do as well. In order to overcome that temptation, which was to quote the word of God.
0: Yes. And if, if Satan tempts him and says, wouldn't you like some bread right now? Turn these breads into stone. If the reason that he could say no is because he was God, then when we are presented with that same moment, we will always fail. Because we're not God. The, the answer is not, um, I live by God's word, not by just food. We would say, well, I'm not God, I'm going to fail.
2: I've also heard it said, um, I think it's just as blasphemous, if not more, the people who say, well, it was easy for Jesus to not sin because he was God. And it was likewise, not that big deal that he died on the cross because he, it was easy for him to to endure that because he was God. Well, he didn't endure that as God, he endured it as man.
0: Yeah, and and I think that, I, I think that is actually very powerful to process. I would agree with the way she said that it, it is it's not fair to Jesus first. And I think it is I think it's theologically blasphemous to say, because I, I've had people even process, try to try to convince me that when um, when Paul was stoned to death, he didn't feel anything. When Stephen was stoned to death, he didn't feel anything. When Jesus was dying on the cross, he didn't feel anything because he was God. Guys, don't, don't try to clean this up to make it good for a denomination or a church group that has certain theological beliefs. Don't, don't change the story. Scripture tells us the story. Stick with what it says. I am, I am so much a literalist when it comes to Scripture. And I've had so many people over the years tell me that kind of, well, you can't be a literalist about everything. Because when you go to Revelation... And that's, that's where everything starts getting weird because, well, this says a third of the stars fell from the heaven. Does that mean that real um, uh, uh, suns, other suns, fell? You're trying to see something from our understanding of science and reasoning now and extrapolate that back when he wrote it. When it says a third of the stars fell from the heaven, I believe that's exactly what happened. We may not understand what that means now until it starts happening, but that's what the scripture says. I'm a literalist in, in the creation account, too. I think it took six days, 24 hour days. God didn't need, what is it, 1.83 million, a billion years. He just didn't, Rick. You got to in all of this. You got to consider Hebrews four fifteen, that says, "For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin." That I mean that that there states that he endured like we do. Yeah, he had to go through it. And I've said this before, and I and I don't I don't want to theologically hammer on this too hard because I can't necessarily prove it, but I do. So here's the thing. We know that Jesus is tempted in all things like we are. And that means that Jesus was tempted sexually too. Okay? And I think I can give you a couple examples in the New Testament when that happened. I can't prove it definitively. But this part I do know. He was tempted sexually. Why? Because it says he was tempted in everything. The difference is is he did not sin. So what do I do? I followed that example. This is why there is never an excuse for us to sin. Never. It doesn't matter all the details, all the stuff. There is never an excuse for us to sin. We can say no. Why? Because Jesus said no. Now, if you take one moment, one little space in time, like the like the um, the wilderness. And, you know, turn these stones into bread. You take one little moment and you say, well, Jesus did good. He, he excelled. And, uh, I mean, that was like a 30-day challenge. What, what happens is, is we start to say to ourselves, um, well, you know, he, there was, he, he, that was just a little moment in time that he was tested or tempted. And then he excelled. But, you, but I've been going through this whatever for years. Okay. What do you say about that when it comes to Jesus? Yeah, that did sound convoluted. Okay, if, if we say, well, I've been tempted by the same thing over and over for years and years, and I don't see evidence that Jesus was tempted by the same thing over and over. Well, here's, what, here's the way I look at that is, but Jesus actually went 33 years that he never sinned. How much more difficult is that than us going through one type of temptation for a very long time, but one type of temptation and falling in and out of that temptation, in and out of sin, failing, succeeding, failing, succeeding. Jesus dealt with every temptation ever presented and didn't ever sin one time for the entire existence of his life. That's powerful. What... What kept him going, specifically as he gets older and he starts recognizing the differences in, in morality and morality and sin and things like this. I really believe, and the statement that we get, this is, this is part of the reason, by the way, well, I think that this little part of scripture is in there. When it talks about the, when Jesus is about 12 years old and, and his parents were there and they left and, and, um, and Jesus, they find Jesus in the temple and they're upset at him. Right, they're upset at him because they think he's being disobedient. Right, and you want to go, oh, guys. You don't. You don't. You're not getting it. You're upset because you found him in the temple, debating and conversing with learned scholars of many years, and holding his own with them at twelve. And you're upset because you had to come all the way back to get you. Right. And, and I've even seen things written over the years that, now this is from very liberal parts of, of, of uh, the Christian thinking, the theological thinking, is that this was proof that while Jesus didn't sin, he wasn't always doing the right thing. I'm like, come on. Why do people do stupid things like that? Why do they say stupid stuff like that? There, there's always this thing about us as human beings that we're trying to bring all the things of God down to our levels, our existence, our understanding. This is what I've been talking about. I've been picking on a little bit. And I always always qualify this so there's no confusion. I do like listening to Reformed preachers. I do like listening to um, even like Calvinist preachers and things like that because they have some good solid truth. They have some good solid teaching. But at the end of the day, they take anything off the table that has anything to do with... Um, depth of spirituality, self-surrender and submission, the move of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, anything that goes outside our rational understanding, they take off the table because it makes them uncomfortable. Right? And here's part of the thing with serving Jesus, is He, he is going to go outside your box. And the moment you think you can contain him, you're going to have to make one of two choices. I will continue to put what I say is my theological premise inside a nice clean box or I will surrender myself and actually follow Jesus. And this is where I spent, I spent years in different seminaries and different things where I would meet ministers that were engrossed. I mean, um, professors, theologians, some were ministers that were engrossed by the word of God. They were they were Um, enraptured by the word of God but they had no relationship with Jesus and that word of God never went beyond analytical thinking I can always explain it I always have something I always have an answer okay then explain to me in scripture where it says that when you're praying in tongues you do not know what you're saying explain it right? explain that When it says you can't and you won't be able to, you can't always understand this stuff. This is where when Jesus is being tempted and we have the ability to say he said no, then what is my answer? I will say no because I want to do the best I can to be like Jesus. Not because it makes sense, not because I have all this power over whatever. No, but because I'm keeping my eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12. I am keeping my eyes on Jesus. That's what gives me the ability to follow in his example. <clears throat> we have to move quicker. Okay, now we go down to okay, chapter 2, verse 1. Luke, at that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taking, taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taking, taken when Corinnaeus was governor of Syria. Now, this is kind of the chicken before the egg, right? Which came first, chicken or the egg, right? And, and by the way, we do know the answer to that, right? Chicken. The Bible says chicken. It didn't say, and God created all eggs. It said He created the animals. Later, they had chickens born from them, but God, God, God didn't create eggs, He created chickens. That one's always irritated me. Who came first, chicken and egg? You're an idiot. That's my answer. <clears throat> so verse 3, all returned to their own ancestral town to register for the census. And because Joseph was the descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem and Judah, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this is, this is one of those, those cool things in Scripture where you say, okay, it was prophesied that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. It also prophesied that he was going to be a Nazarene from Nazareth. And it also prophesied that he was going to come out of Egypt. Now, when you read all this, you're like, what? That can't all happen. And God's like, well, watch me. That's easy peasy compared to the rest of it. Right? Right? Well, but, but he's not living. He's not living in Bethlehem. How do, I, how do you get him back to Bethlehem? That's simple. Just have a census. Right? He Comes right back to Bethlehem. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth, which is where he was, where Joseph was living. And by the way, it's where they moved back to. Okay, eventually. So Jesus grew up in Nazareth. that's why people ask me this and I, they'll they'll say well so when anybody anytime anybody meets linda they always say you're not from around here and um and uh and, and it's interesting she 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 may not admit this she may not even know this is happening but if some if she goes in somewhere and she's talking and she can't help being southern and by the way she is very much not southern compared to the when i met her if you would if you knew her if you could see her from then, she's not. She was barely speaking English. <laughs> it was it was hardcore Texas, okay. And um, but we'll go in somewhere and somebody will say, "You're not from here, are you?" And invariably, I'm standing there. I'm listening. Immediately, that Texas comes out so much stronger than just 15 seconds ago. <laughs> it's weird. It's like a switch. Went off. Oil? Oil? That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. thought you say everything's oil. Um, so so here's the thing with this is somebody will say, Are you are you from here? Linda, are you from Colorado? What's the true answer? I was born here, but i got to you, here. <laughs> she was born here. I was also born in Colorado. We both were born in Colorado. Got I got to Texas like 15 minutes later. Linda took three or four years. My mother came up here, was living in Texas. My dad's in Vietnam, came up here, had me in Pueblo because her grand, my grandmother, her mother lived there and then went back to Texas a few months later. So I grew up in Texas all my life. But when somebody says, are you from Texas? It depends on who's asking the question. Because what I'm a native (laughs) Coloradan. I'm a native. I can claim that, right? But I'm a Texan through and through. Not as quite as much as my wife. Well, here's the thing: was Jesus a Nazarene? He was from Nazareth. He grew up in Nazareth. His dad was from Nazareth before he was born. But where was he born? Bethlehem. Remember when, when uh, Jesus is talking to the very first disciples to get saved? Who was it? Simon Peter comes up and Peter goes back and tells who? Andrew, okay? And Andrew goes and tells who? This is where you know, we're like I don't I don't remember all those names. Nathanael. Nathanael says what? can anything good come out of Nazareth? I said that about three or four years ago here. I was, I was uh, in the middle of a sermon and I said something about, it's the same thing as like Boulder. We would say, can any good thing come out of Boulder? And after service, this lady comes up to me and says, Pastor, um, I was born and raised in Boulder. And I was like, well, because I'm quick on my feet. I was like, well, then there are good things that come out of Boulder. He's like, no, I agree with you. I was like, yeah, I just lied to you. I didn't. So a census, that's all it takes, a census. And God takes him right back to Bethlehem. And he's born in Bethlehem. Okay. He took with him Mary to whom he was engaged. She was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him... That's an, that's an important sentence too. She gave birth to her firstborn son. Why is that an important sentence? She had more children. Now here's where it gets a little tricky. You talk to an old school Roman Catholic, hardcore Roman Catholic, and they will not admit that Mary had other children. She remained... Um, a virgin the rest of her existence and did not have other children. Except the Bible records not only this sentence, but who these other children were. And then they asked Jesus one time, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are wanting your attention. Now now the Catholic Church takes that statement and says, but yeah, but Jesus proved that he was the only child because he said, my... my family, my mothers and brothers and sisters are those that do the will of God, which means he didn't have any other brothers and sisters. Then why did these people come up and say they're waiting for you outside? He wasn't talking about birth lineage there. He was talking about submission to the king. They were talking about birth lineage and they were all waiting for him outside. And by the way, um, his brothers and sisters did not believe that he was the Messiah. Yeah, I wouldn't believe that. If my brother would have told me when I was about 12 years old, oh, by the way, um, I'm God. i had have been like, we're going to fight. <laughs> that was pretty much our answer to anything. was so. yeah, like the story. Joseph was kind of kind mean, of Jesus his Turned out to be. Trisha has something to say. <laughs> <laughs> You got to say it all again.
2: <laughs> um, no, I, I was just. It made what you were saying made me think of J- the Joseph story because yes. Joseph was a type of Jesus, a pre like a precursor, and <laughs> Tag you're it. <laughs> he, he clipped you. Joseph was a type was a type of Jesus, like like a, a forerunner, like to get, get a glimpse. Yep. And his brothers. I mean, he said that he, God had told him something special, and God, you know, he, he knew the, the anointing was on him from God, and his brothers thought he was crazy. That's why they killed him. And they, they, didn't, get, they didn't really kill him, and he ended up being who saved their life. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of similar, what you're saying about Jesus' brothers and sisters.
0: Yeah, um, Joseph definitely is an Old Testament archetype of Jesus. In fact, his name is the same as Jesus' name. When you go from Hebrew... Into Greek, uh, it's the same name. Jo- Joseph is definitely the picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. Everything about Joseph's life uh, is is the story of Jesus. It's a very powerful thing. Okay, so um, where was I? She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. What does that matter? Yes, it was prophesied, but why is it important? Why first was it prophesied, which means it was important, and then Jesus fulfilled it? Russell.
1: So the uh, wrapping a a sacrificial lamb for the shepherds in swaddling clothes and laying him in the manger... The shepherds knew what that meant because that's a that's a sacrificial lamb that they would sacrifice um, at the you know um, Passover Passover yeah yeah
0: which I'll give you a little something here if you just want to take that um, that uh, t- that picture and study this through Scripture guys this is this is just this element of the story is very very powerful the the wrapping in the clothes the setting aside. In a manger, setting aside one of the animals, wrapping it up and preparing it for the sacrifice. Here's the cool thing about it is study that all the way through the New Testament. So you have a good visual picture of what that looks like. I mean, in the Old Testament, study that and get a good visual picture of that in the Old Testament. And then after Jesus dies on the cross, um, Peter and John ran to the tomb, right? Who got there first? No, of Peter and John.
1: <laughs>
0: Peter and John ran too. We got the first Mary. What? John. Because he specifically tells us, I ran faster than Peter. He says that. Because, you know, they were 19. So, so John gets there first, but John wouldn't go inside. John gets there first, but he wouldn't go inside. See, John was a very touchy-feely, very introspective, a very motive, that kind of thing. Peter was just rash and brash. He just ran in and jumped, ran straight into the tomb. Their personalities are amazing. Pay attention to that stuff in Scripture. It has, pur- it has purpose. But So Peter runs in, and when Peter steps into the tomb, what does he see in the tomb? The grave clothes are laying there. When, when you go back to this and you see how the sacrifices were prepared all of the stuff, then we get to the tomb. The clothes are there, but the sacrifice is not there. And here's another cool thing about that. Um, in, in the, they see the, the, the uh, angels, the cherubim, in the tomb. And I believe, if, when you read this and you get the description, I believe what they are describing. If you took a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, the top of the Ark of the Covenant has angels on each side and their wings expand and touch in the middle. It's very very described very thoroughly in Scripture. If you took a picture of that and just set it and moved into that tomb at that moment and overlaid it right there, you would see the exact same visual. That this is the argument. The angels on each side right there, the cloth is laying there because the sacrifice is no longer in the cloth. And the fact, I think this is part of it too, the fact that the, the cloth is there lets you know that he was there and, he, and they didn't take him somewhere. Because they didn't unwrap him. It, it, the, way, the way I see it is, when they stepped in the tomb, the cloth that had been wrapped around it just collapsed. And it's still laying there. They didn't take him somewhere. His body wasn't taken. All this is still there. So, so yeah. Okay, so then that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. I talked about this a couple weeks ago the significance of the shepherds. Guys, I think this is important. I think the fact that he was born in a manger, he wasn't born in a palace, I think these are important elements that Jesus is trying to establish who he is at every single piece of this. There is not one coincidence of any of this that he wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a manger. He was the lowliest of the lowliest. And the lowliest of the lowliest are the first that came to see him. They're the ones celebrating who he is. And, and by the way, when you really have a strong representation of the gospel, most of the people that are drawn to a true representation of the gospel are not the ultra-wealthy. Now, we're not leaving them out. Okay? Okay because we do see even in scripture where that did happen sometimes like even when Paul was preaching and Felix was very interested that kind of thing that the, the kings are are interested but for the most part it's the average person that is really struggling through life and dealing with life on a day-to-day basis that that can see and capture and understand Jesus quicker because they they don't have as much they
1: don't have as many trappings
0: involved Russell
1: so if you look at the, all that, the fulfillment of prophecy, God knew that that was going to happen, and so he was preparing the Jewish nation to understand it back thousands of years before yeah. that, because what if the Israelites didn't have a sacrificial lamb, then that would not matter
0: it wouldn't have meant yeah, anything.
1: It would have meant anything. Yeah. And so, it, you know, the whole history, the 4,000 years before, was preparing for that moment. Yeah. And every single year, they celebrate Passover. They
0: go through all these feasts. They do all this stuff. And year after year after year, this for, for hundreds and then thousands of years, they are doing the exact same things every single year. And all of these are shouting out... That Jesus is coming. Every one of these are shouting out that Jesus is coming. And this is why it is so discouraging. And this is also why it's discouraging, but it's, but it's a revelatory of how much Satan can blind us. Because, you know, you, you, back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, there was movies that were made that, what if Jesus came to the earth right now, what it would look like. And they always made Jesus out to be some kind of weirdo. But, but the, the reality of Jesus stepping into the time and place nobody is ever going to be ready for that. Okay, the only group of people that will ever be ready for the Messiah to step into the place at the time is the Muslims for the demonic Messiah, which is the Antichrist. The, the, the 12th Imam. Okay, that's... The people weren't ready for Jesus to step on the scene and say, I'm God. They weren't ready for this. And so the the... the the, the, God had to be reinforcing this year after year after year after year. And, but then there are some people, in fact, there is a great place to go to, a great website. Um, I think the name of the website is One for Israel. Um, a great place to go to look at stories and, and, um, and, and many, many testimonies. They have a whole section of testimonies of Jewish people that got it and how they got it. And they they tell their story you know they're a good Jewish kid, grew up in a good Jewish home or maybe a nominal Jewish home or maybe a, a secular Jewish home and all this stuff and then one day they got it and they recognize that Jesus was the messiah and then and then they have to tell their family i mean there's, there's there's many 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 of these stories and videos and then other stories of people that are not Jewish but are like um, Muslims and arabs and and um, all kinds of of uh like you know, that kind of bloodline, but outside the Jewish focus, and how when they got it, immediately God showed them the significance of the Jewish people and the traditions and all this stuff. It's a great website to go to. And I'm pretty sure it's oneforisrael.org. Yeah.
2: This was sent to me the other day. We we tend to think of a manger scene with, you know, Jesus like laying like this in some wooden little trough and a, a, a cloth laid loosely over the top and I always would I would always think well didn't the baby get cold but this is this was powerful there's a picture and I can show anybody who wants to see it afterward it's actually a the manger is made of stone it's it said no matter how many times I read this I cannot do it without getting chills I bet you you didn't know that the following about the manger that Jesus was laid in. Of course, mangers are animal feeding troughs, but in ancient Israel, they were made of stone, not what you would see in a modern day nativity scene. Not comfortable, but great for protection. That's why those who were experts in this matter, the priests would put their newborn lambs in them for protection, but not just any lamb. The unblemished, perfect lambs that were used in sacrifice for sins. And Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, was famous for their unblemished lambs used for these sacrifices. These lambs had to be perfect, so they would wrap them tightly in cloth and lie them in a manger to keep them safe. This is exactly why the only time mangers are mentioned in Jesus' birth story is being told to shepherds. In Luke 2, it says... This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. The shepherds would have understood the powerful parallel. They knew what the cloth and the manger meant. This baby would be the perfect lamb of God, the Messiah who would sacrifice his life for the sins of the whole world. He wasn't just a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. He was God, perfect, sinless, and holy, humbling himself, to become the perfect sacrifice to reconcile us back to himself. That, my friend, that the perfect lamb is why we celebrate Christmas. And it's a very cool picture of what a manger looked like. And anybody can see it if you want to. Yeah,
0: the the idea that this, uh, we we say that the lamb had to be a perfect little lamb. It couldn't even have a spot on it. Nothing, right? Which is where we get the language out of of, um, Ephesians chapter 5 having to do with... um, Marriage and forgiveness, grace, right? Now, it, it got to the place where this, you know, this is why Jesus went into the temple and turned the tables over, because they were selling sacrificial animals, and, and they, the, the families would bring a, an animal to sacrifice, and the officials that were um, studying, I mean, um, um, analyzing them, inspecting them, approving them, that worked for the temple, part of the priesthood worked for the temple, they would say, well, that animal isn't good enough, but we have some for sale here. That's the, that's the concept behind this, is they were they were running a uh, scam. Well, your animal can't be approved because it has a fleck of dirt over or it has a little piece of grass stuck in its fur over here. And ours are perfect. And Jesus said... You're taking away the heart of this thing. You're destroying this. You're perverting this. You're making this ugly. They they had been saving this lamb specifically for the sacrifice. And then you're saying my sacrifice is not good enough. We have to use your sacrifice. This was the whole uh, King Saul thing where obedience is better than sacrifice. It's not about the actual sacrifice. It's the heart. It's the existence of that. I'm I'm talking a little bit about that this weekend. But, the, but giving yourself to this, that's the sacrifice. So uh, the thing she was saying, the, 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 you'll find a sign, you'll find a, the baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Verse 13, Suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Now this is an interesting thing, peace on earth. Jesus came to bring peace, Right? Jesus is peace. But Jesus himself said, I didn't come to bring peace. So why is this saying? Well, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. See, the last part of it says, to those whom God is pleased. When you are following God, you have a promise of peace. I'm going to be talking about that, that concept for quite a few weeks on the next on Sunday mornings for a while. And I'll explain all that Sunday. I'm going to, go, I'm going to start a series This week is like the intro, and then the next week, and the the few after that are the actual series. But Jesus is peace, and he gives his followers peace. But he did not come to bring peace to the world. This, this is where people get confused. And, they, and they're looking for some kind of utopian nirvana kind of mentality that says that if everybody will just get along, there will be peace. There will never, ever be peace on the earth. Ever. And Jesus did not come to bring world peace. In fact, when you hear a Christian really starting to talk like that, it's because they are Jehovah Witness, they're not Christians. Jehovah's Witness believes in a, in a um, that, that if we will just do all of the stuff that we're supposed to do, the biblical stuff, obey the commandments, do all that kind of stuff, then God will bring perfection. We will get closer and closer and closer to perfection, and we will arrive at perfection someday. Jehovah's Witness was the, the beginning. This is my opinion. Most people would not connect the dots here. I do. Jehovah's Witness, in my opinion, was the beginning of what we call Scientology now. Okay, Um, They would not agree with each other that that's true. They wouldn't agree with me, but I think that because we were looking for the utopia, we will bring the utopia. The perfection will be brought and the whole earth will be made perfect. That's Jehovah's Witness. Right? The earth will not be made perfect. Jesus did not come to bring peace among the nations. He came to put the governments upon his shoulder and carry the governments into his plan and his will if they will submit to him. And anybody that submits to him will be his follower and will be under his authority and under his government and the government will rest upon him. But anybody that doesn't will be this, this um, end times Babylon kind of thing that will be destroyed when it's all said and done. Okay, Jesus, Jesus didn't come to bring peace to all humanity. He became came to bring peace to anybody that submits to him. Those are two different subjects, two different storylines. If it just because we, and this is why, you know, we have these Christmas movies are the I think probably the worst about this. But if, if everybody can just stand in the in the courtyard and sing a Christmas carol, we'll all get along and there'll be world peace. Or or yes, every like every movie on the Harm Rock channel, but or or if, we, um, or, if we, or if that particular person wins uh, Miss Universe um, or whatever Miss America, then we will have world peace and it's, and it 's goofy how we, we do things like this, and we think that it's actually going to happen, and then you, then this filters down over years, and I'm, i 've got to be careful because i 'm tiptoeing up toward my messages over the next few weeks, but this, this becomes something that when you think this way long enough, which is a lie, it's not truth. When you think this way long enough, you really think, and there are people in our government, in the highest levels of our government, that really do believe that if we will all just sit down at a table and talk with each other, that we will see each other's differences and we will all get along. There are people that think that. Guys, I'm not making this stuff up. There there are State Department people that have thought this for, for decades, that if we will just talk with each other, we will all get along. We will see each other as humans, and we will get along. It was said that God will bring peace to those who follow, but it does not say that there will be peace between them. That's true, and that's where it gets a little... I'm confusing. Now I do believe this. When I'm a Christian and I and there is a Christian on the other side of the planet, we will get along. We have the same worldview. Okay? But that doesn't mean because I call myself part of Christianity and another group calls themselves a part of Christianity that we get along. Because just because people say that doesn't mean that we are submitted to Jesus doesn't mean we are serving the same Jesus to begin with, by the way. And it doesn't mean that we are submitted to Jesus. But here's, here's, the, here's one of the, the, the more powerful stories, and there are some of these stories on One for Israel, is when a Muslim gets saved, they can no longer hate a Christian. When they really get saved, they're not going to hate Christians anymore. Because they are a Christian. And here's another one, is if they really give their heart to Jesus Christ, they won't hate the Jewish people anymore either. And there are testimonies on that website that will say that stuff. That I, I, I just realized I can't do this anymore. Oneforisrael.org. The the letters, O-N-E, oneforisrael.org. And they began to say that, um, that... This is what uh, the, the gentleman that we had here uh, a few months ago when Afghanistan was being evacuated and all that stuff, and the guy was from Afghanistan, and he said that, that one of the um, best ways to witness to a Jewish person, he says, is when an Afghanistan witnesses to a Jewish person. He said because the Afghanis don't get along with the Jewish people. He said when a Muslim will witness to a Jewish person, that it blows their mind, and they will be more open to the message of Jesus Christ. Because why? For thousands of years, they've hated each other. Not for a little while. That's why when our government comes in and says, oh, we're going to help everybody in the Middle East get along. We're just going to help everybody. If, you got, if Israel, if you'll just give them some of this land, that's all they're wanting. They're just want a little bit of land. And if you'll just give them that land, it'll all work out. This has nothing to do with that piece of land. It has to do with the spiritual basis of what that piece of land means and the God that is in charge of it. There is never, ever, ever going to be an end to the mentality of the Middle East. Ever. And it doesn't matter which president comes along that thinks they can have their accords and they will make peace. They will broker peace in the Middle East. No, you will not. It will never, ever happen. The only person that's going to broker peace in the Middle East is who? The Antichrist. I tricked you guys the way I said that. You're all like Jesus. Wait, not Jesus. The Antichrist. He's the only one that will ever broker peace. And when he does, he sets up the end. Begins the tribulation. Think about that. Now, I don't think it's wrong for our presidents to try and do all that kind of stuff. And everyone them have done it since 1948. But it's never going to happen. Ever. Okay. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph. And there was the baby lying in the manger, just like they had seen. And, and like Russell said, and then Trisha said also, when they ran up there, they immediately recognized what was going on. It's the same thing as when John the Baptist is standing in the river, right? In the Jordan, and, and Jesus comes walking up, and he says, and this is, the, this is the lamb in the swaddling clothes, when he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away The sins of the world. Doesn't just push them back, but takes away every person. And there was hundreds of people that were doing this. Every single person there immediately recognized that he just called Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God in human flesh. Just with that sentence. Because they had been celebrating Passover for thousands of years. Right? Some of this stuff, we just don't get as, as easily as they do. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about the, this child. And this, this verse 17 to me is, is, should be a very convicting verse to any Christian, any Christian that does not witness to people. Because immediately the shepherds see Jesus and they have to tell people. They have to. And they are not respected in society very well, so this is going to be an uphill climb. But they have to tell people about Jesus. And, and it's amazing how in Western society, we can, quote-unquote, meet Jesus, see Jesus, get saved, and we have no desire to tell anybody about Him. Something's wrong. Something's disconnected. When it comes to truly submitting and surrendering and accepting, in fact, I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm getting all over my messages, so... The idea of giving your life to Jesus is not a Western Christian concept. We pray a prayer and get saved. We don't give our life to Him. My my life now belongs to Jesus. And I'll just give you a precursor of about three weeks from now, part of the series. When we give our life to Jesus, who owned our life before that? Satan. See, here's the big lie that humanity has told itself for centuries and millennium, is that we are in charge of our life. I am the king of my kingdom. And if I want to surrender that and give it to Jesus, I can. But I'm in charge of my life. You are not in charge of your life. Satan is in charge of your life. And then your only other option is Jesus is in charge of your life. You are never in charge, but you think you are. But you're never in control of you. But we have this little humanistic mentality that, well, I'm making the decision, so I'm in charge. But every decision has to come from somewhere. The base comes from somewhere. Your foundation is on something. Everything. The decisions you make come from somewhere. Where do they come from? And they're going somewhere. Where are they going? That's all I'll say because I don't want to speak my message. So it'll be a couple weeks. You'll have forgot I said all that. All all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. But Mary kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. Because she wasn't. she was convinced she knew this. I mean, obviously... She had a child and she had never been with a man. So she was pretty convinced. But she had to grow in this thing. This is one of the things that we just don't process. And again, when I say this, it irritates people sometimes. But Mary still raised a little baby that cried and pooped. That doesn't feel very divine. That doesn't feel very godly. That doesn't feel supernatural, right? So she had to keep these things in her heart and ponder on them regularly. She had to remember this and ponder them regularly. I have have heard many, many mothers over over decades now tell me, well, this is what God told me about my daughter or my son. And it's not necessarily, I'm not seeing it. Maybe as a teenager, I'm not seeing it. Adult, not seeing it. Later adult, not seeing it. But they keep it locked up in there. This is the same thing Mary's doing. I know this is the truth. I know this is the story. I'm sticking with the storyline, although it is not feeling like it right now. It doesn't seem like it right now. Think about about the exasperation when the very first miracle that ever happens, Mary almost has to, to prod Jesus into it. And he literally says to her, Mary, Mom, it's not time yet. The turning the water into wine. And he said, Mary, my time has not come yet. Back off, mom. That's what he's saying. Read it again with that mentality. That's exactly what he's saying. Mom, back off. But mom knew what God had said. And he's already 30. He has not launched. (laughs) Right? Don't you think that was going on? And she's thinking, is this guy ever going to do anything? And Jesus is listening to the Holy Spirit. And yes, he turns the water into wine. But he said, Mom, this, you're, you're rushing this. Let God be in charge. I'm going to follow God. You're causing a problem. The question is, is, how did she even know that he was doing it? That he could do the, turn water into wine? Because I think that's what this sentence is saying. She knew she had been. She had heard God. She remembers that angel. Jesus doesn't remember the angel telling her this, except he does, because he was. He wasn't informed. You know. So, but but she remembered that. She remembered, and you know, her and Elizabeth. Her and Elizabeth talked about this for years. No, she just said, "Do something. It's about time, Jesus. Do something." <laughs> and so but, but that's the part where she had locked this up in her she knew it, she knew it, she knew it, and, it was, and she was waiting because she knew there was more than what she was seeing from Jesus and then that began uh, everything alright, so let's pray how shall we pray i tell you one of the things that I, I always pray around this time, and, I'll, and I'm actually going to mention this just a little bit Christmas Eve. But, but here's the thing that I always pray when it comes to these kind of things. Jesus, help me just to believe your word and not try to figure out how it happens. Last year, I talked about the star. I spent a, a while talking two different Wednesday nights talking about the star of Bethlehem, and, and the star goes right over the top, and that's how the wise men found him and all that. And, and all these history channels, science channel stuff that talk about, well, you know, when the stars lined up, and they, no, it says it led them to the house. I just, I just have to believe that. I choose to just be literal with Scripture. And if Jesus said that's how it happens, that's how it happens. This is one of my prayers with Christmas story. Jesus, help me just to believe exactly what happened. Help me not try to make it something different. Or fix it. Or make it work in today's society. Or or science or whatever. I'm just going to take it like it says it. And believe it. When you're talking to somebody about Jesus. In the Christmas story. I think it's important. That you don't try to change it to convince them. Tell them the truth. And the Holy Spirit will use truth. To convince somebody every single time. But when we try to fix it so that it works, or try to edge it, you know, when they say, well, you know, that couldn't really have happened, you know, you're probably right. No, just stand on the word, and it will be amazed what God can do with that in ways that, that um, we can't do by ourselves. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for you and your amazingness. We thank you for, Lord, just orchestrating this whole thing for the purpose Just coming to us to our rescue, to redeem us, to deliver us. Lord, thank you for coming to our rescue. Lord, help us to use your word, your truth, the Christmas story. Help us to use this, this next few days to talk to people, to minister, to witness. Lord, to help people see how big you are and how much you love them. Lord, if we could just get that across. So anoint our words, our hearts, our minds that Jesus, you're the, you're the everything and you love us so much. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. We will see you Christmas Eve. Five o'clock and 6.30. Those are the two times.